Um, so last Sunday I wasn't here. If you were, if you're here, um, I was preaching at a church in Baltimore called the Foundry that Revolution helped to plant once upon a time, and it was super fun. Um, with the exception, they do two services, so I had to preach twice, which I wasn't used to doing on Sunday mornings. So I was a little uh, exhausting, I guess is the word for it. Um, but meanwhile, Paul McGrew was here at Revolution, and he stepped in to talk about Samson, and I heard things went pretty well. Um, but this week, I'm back, and we are continuing in week six of our summer series, Stories We Tell. And we're going to just jump right in, aside from the stuff about people not being here and a cut on my head. Um, but aside from that, we're going to jump right in because we have an extraordinarily tough story to talk about, and I'd like for us to give it as much justice as we can. And the truth is that I'm not at all sure how this is going to go. Um, I don't know if it's going to be satisfying to you or not, but at the end of the day, I decided that um, we're going to try to do something honest, and we're going to trust that honesty, even when we're dealing with something that's difficult, something that's upsetting, um, is the right thing to do. So what's the story? Um, the story is when we find in 2 Samuel, and the headings in most Bibles say it's the story of how King David commits adultery with Bathsheba. That is not what happens. Um, a brief bit of context before we read. The King David in this story is the second ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, in the timeline of the Hebrew people, which we've been reminding ourselves of throughout the series, this is a story that occurs after the Exodus event, and then after the time of the judges, like Samson, but it happens before uh, the civil war that's going to occur in the times of David's children and his grandchildren that's going to split the country apart, and then also that means it happens before their exile in Babylon, and it means it happens before the oral traditions of all of these stories of Abraham, Moses, and, and the kings, including David, are eventually recorded in writing. Which means that it is, as our series title says, a story that we told, um, a story that we still tell. In terms of David's life, who's, who's the central figure of the story, he is somebody who's risen from being a nobody shepherd to being a beloved king. And he is in the middle of his rule, and Israel is doing great. Everybody is prospering. They're winning a lot of battles and wars. And yet, here is where we pick the story up. In the spring of one year the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David sent messengers, read soldiers, to get her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. And then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, one of the tricks of this sermon is, like, all of the sermons that this is trying not to be. Um, there are many sermons you may have heard about the story that focus on the boogeyman of temptation in this story. I heard all of these versions of this sermon growing up as a Christian boy in the midst of, like, the purity culture movement of the 1990s. And so I heard a lot of sermons where the big idea was, well, if David had been out fighting with his men, then none of this would have happened. Or if David hadn't been peeking at naked ladies, then none of this would have happened, teenage boys. 
Or even, and maybe this is one you guys have heard, if Bathsheba had been more discreet, then none of this would have happened. But I think an issue with a lot of those readings of this story is that they work way too hard to make this story about us and what we're going to learn um, than to make it the story about Bathsheba, who seems to me the character that is most, uh, most central. So what happens to her? Well, a king sees her, and he wants her, and then he sends messengers, read soldiers, to get her, and then he rapes her. And sometimes we tiptoe around that word here, but I think it's deserved. Um, I've learned not a lot about Hebrew, but I've learned enough about Hebrew to know that the clue, right, is in the way that the phrase, he lay with her, gets translated here. When people have consensual sex in the Bible, that's not what it says. It says they lay together. But that's not what it says here. It says he lay with her. So this is meant to be understood as a one-sided encounter. And then after this assault, what happens to Bathsheba? Well, she becomes pregnant while her husband is away at war, which means, of course, that everybody around her is going to assume that she's the one who's the adulterer. She's going to be outcast, right? She's going to be humiliated, even after already being abused. And so her only recourse, right, is to go back to her abuser and to tell him what has happened to her. And so in this story, she's a character who deserves justice, is not getting justice, and is not going to get justice. Instead, what's going to happen, right, is David is going to try and cover up the tracks of what he's done. And so what he does in the story is he sends for her husband Uriah, brings him back from the battle. And his hope, of course, is that Uriah is going to sleep with his wife while he's home, and that that's going to like cover up everything that happens. But instead, the storytellers say... In verse 9, that Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So it becomes worth asking, right? Why does Uriah do this? Right? Why rather does Uriah not go home? And the answer, of course, is because Uriah is a character in the story who's actually following the rules, right? One of the, the religious rules of the Israelites that the Israelite army believes is that having sex during a military campaign is something that makes a person unclean. If you're unclean, you become unfit for battle. And so Uriah, expecting that he's going to go back to war, doesn't do that. And so David tries again, right? This time he gets Uriah drunk first, hoping that'll kind of make him forget all of his promises. But still, Uriah refuses to go home. And so, in verse 14, we read, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who is his commander, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. So David forces Uriah to carry his own death sentence back to his commander. Which means that what we're seeing here, right, is a character who's compounding all of his abuses. He has raped Bathsheba. He's attempted to cover it up. And now he is willing to commit murder. Now, Joab in the story gets ignored a lot, and there's probably a good sermon that focuses on him, but this isn't it. Because what Joab does is he does exactly what he's told, right? And so he puts Uriah at the front, the army pulls back, Uriah is killed. And then after that, I would argue David does one final absolutely abominable thing. Because after Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband, he sins for her, his victim, and decides to make her his wife which to anybody outside the situation, it's not only that that's problematic, right? 
it's worse because anybody outside of the situation is going to appear as if David is, has done something that is tremendously charitable. He has protected this widow's future by bringing her into his own house. And more than that, he has participated in the revered tradition of the kinsman redeemer. He is a man of the tribe who is going to take the wife of someone who's, been, uh, who's died and thus like restore her to honor and to prosperity. So David not only fails to repent or to submit to the reasonable justice he might deserve, instead he makes himself the hero of the whole story in the eyes of the people. So what do we do with this? What I want, I don't know about you, but what I want is I want to read a story about how Bathsheba gets her justice. That's a story I'd be interested in reading. Possibly her revenge. But instead, she disappears from the story altogether. She doesn't show up again for a while until um, she shows up in the story of her son Solomon. And it's not a good look in that story. I would settle for a story where I get to hear how Joab, right, who is one of the only people who knows something about this plot, like stands up to his king, right? I don't know what the version of congressional hearings were in like ancient Israel, but a scenario like that, a heroic Joab who stands up and blows the whistle. But he doesn't do that. I would also like a story where God shows up in a really obvious way, possibly descending from a cloud and doing something to David, punishing David directly. But that's not what happens in the story either. Instead, where we leave chapter 11 is on this verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, good, right? <laughs> it should displease the Lord. And yet, despite that verse, what most of you, if you've grown up in the church or been around churches for long, most of the things we remember about David, right, are his victories over the giant, possibly the Psalms. And of course, we remember that David is the one person in all of the Bible and the Old Testament about whom it is said that he is a man after God's own heart. The hero of the story, to the degree that there is one, and I think it's reasonable to say there isn't, the hero of the story is not Bathsheba or Joab or repentant David. It turns out to be a man named Nathan. Nathan is David's dearest and oldest friend. And in chapter 12, this happens. We read, The Lord sent Nathan to David, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now there's some important things to commend about this story. And I do think they have real bearing on us. And the first is this, right? The first is that Nathan is courageous. Nathan is courageous. Because at this point, David is both king, he's the most powerful person around, and also he has successfully and completely gotten away 
with his crime. There is nothing that Nathan can do that will fix what has happened. And there is no reason whatsoever for David to do anything at all when Nathan confronts him other than punish Nathan for speaking out. There is nothing anyone can do to bring Uriah back. No one can undo what has been done to Bathsheba or even offer her relief at this point. And yet, it would appear that Nathan believes that God's, God's displeasure needs to be heard. That God's displeasure needs to be heard. David needs to know it because even though David is king, he is still supposed to be somebody who's subject to God. So it is God honoring in the story, right, for Nathan to confront his friend, to share God's displeasure with the one with whom God is displeased. That's where my English teacher background messes us up because I don't want to end a sentence in a preposition. And so it's just like really strung along there. Nathan is the first person in the story who remembers that God is in charge. And so one takeaway, right, is this. In our own culture, we could use a lot more Nathans. Abuse, and particularly sexual abuse, is endemic in our power structures. It's endemic in our churches, frankly. And those who see it, those who are aware of what is happening, need to speak out. If you see it, I'll just be blunt with you, right? If you see it, you need to speak out. Silence feeds this illusion that what we think power looks like is, in fact, what power looks like. The CEOs or political leaders or even pastors might seem to be people in charge. But the truth of the matter, right, is that we all exist underneath the real power, the real authority of God. Laws and cultural pressures don't get to determine what is right and what is wrong. Only God gets to determine those things. And even if we have successfully gotten away with something, right, the story isn't meant to be over. And in fact, like, existentially, the story is not over. So there is still, there is always time for accountability. And I would contend it is truly a demonic thing to get lost, as we often do, in some kind of imaginary balance sheet when it comes to, to wrongdoing, right? Where we convince ourselves that like, well, this person or that person may have messed up, but it was a long time ago. Or exposing it now, you know, if you think about it, is actually going to do more harm in the long run than good. Like all of that is bad. Or even worse, right? This is a more common one in the era in which we live, right? I might not like this person's personal behavior, but like they get things done in the world that are the things I want to get done in the world. But the truth is that abuse has no place in like pros and cons lists. And when we fall for that trick of believing that abuse is something that we can weigh against the potential good, then we are ignoring, I would contend, we're ignoring Bathsheba in particular, who is a character in the story who deserves visibility and who deserves justice. But does she get it in the Bible story? I wish the answer was a clear yes, but the truth is, of course, it's more complicated than that. To summarize chapter 12, which kind of goes on for a while, here's what happens. David, when Nathan confronts him, acknowledges that he has, quote, sinned against the Lord. There's another good sermon in breaking that language down, but this isn't that sermon either. I'm telling you a lot of better sermons than the one you're hearing. <laughs> David acknowledges that he sinned against the Lord, and the Lord passes judgment. And here's the judgment the Lord passes. He says that this son that... David conceived with Bathsheba will die. 
And furthermore, he says that it is this specific sin that David has committed with Bathsheba that's going to lead to the divisions within David's own household that will eventually destroy the United Kingdom of Israel. The civil war is David's fault, and it's David's fault for this moment. So there's an enormous cost that's going to be paid for what David has done. David has failed in the singular responsibility that God has given him as king. And now, because David has failed, everybody else is going to pay for it. It's worth asking at this point in the story, right, is that fair? And for me, the reason you're getting the sermon you're getting, and not these better ones, is because it's on this point that I fell apart this week in trying to figure out what to say. Because does that child, right, does Bathsheba deserve the punishment that God is handing down? Do the Israelites deserve this punishment? Their king raped a woman, and now the whole kingdom is going to fall apart. Why not, right? Like, this is where I got hung up. Like, why not just strike David down? Why not get rid of David and then let somebody else, right? Somebody who does a better job of chasing God's heart than David does, let somebody else rule in his place. Surely there's someone. I want to say, as I've been hinting, right, that I know that this sermon is insufficient, that the story is so big, that it has so much going on inside of it, that it's impossible for us to tackle it all in a satisfactory way in one morning. And I'm sorry for that. But I think that one small thing we can do with this sermon is this. We can ask ourselves and focus the rest of our time on the question, where does our hope actually come from? Where are characters putting their hope in this story and what can we learn about what's going wrong? Because for all of their love of him and his story and his victories, it's worth asking, was Israel right to put their trust in David? Would they be any more or less right to put their trust in some better man who might come after him? Is there some better man? I think at this point it can be helpful to remember why David is king of Israel in the first place. Years before, in that timeline that we mapped out, right? Years before, and at the end of the time of the judges, the people of Israel became frankly embarrassed about the strangeness of the way that their nation was being led. This invisible God who occasionally appoints judges to do stuff, and sometimes those judges are abominable people like Samson, and that's the good plan. That's God's plan. You mostly are on your own, except for every once in a while, monsters come up to do stuff for you. That system was embarrassing. Trusting in God alone, which is what that system was meant to do, trusting in God alone to lead them through these prophets and these judges was unique in the culture and community that surrounded them, and it was odd. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to the prophet Samuel and said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said this, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. 
Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel does this. He says that the kings that they are going to appoint, and this is specific in 1 Samuel, that the kings they're going to appoint are going to retreat from battles, that they're going to put themselves up in fancy palaces, and that they are going to take the things that are not theirs. Which is to say that, in other words, the kings are going to behave in exactly the way that David has behaved. And this suggests then that the issue isn't, in fact, David. That the issue is giving the job of God to a man, whoever that man is. Now, on this past Thursday, my oldest daughter, Evangeline, turned 15. That means, as I reflect on it, that she has spent her most formative years, right, from the age of eight until now, in a time that I would characterize as being pretty genuinely chaotic in the world, and particularly in the world of adults in this country political division, a pandemic, an insurrection, climate change. And I wonder how often and how, or I wonder often is a better way of saying it, I wonder often like how all of that from her like age 8 to 15, how is this shaping her view of the world? One big difference that I've already seen is this. When I was growing up, I'm 41. And I knew that the country in which I lived had problems, but I think I still believed in like my heart of hearts that there were always like some experts out there who were going to figure it out, right? I still believed like some scientists or college professors or politicians or like certainly NASA, like if nobody else, at least NASA, is going to like sort things out in the end. That like the world I was living in is something that would bend, but it wouldn't break. And what I've noticed is that my 15-year-old daughter does not have that faith. Not even a little. She doesn't see responsibility. She doesn't even see agency in the world of adults. What she sees is brokenness everywhere, among everybody. No one's coming to the rescue. And I grieve that for her, her experience of the, of the world. But I also wonder, especially in weeks like this one, if that experience gives her a clarity that I didn't have. And the clarity is this, right? That our leaders aren't better than we are. I think I believed that. I think I still believe that somewhere deep down in a place I can't quite dig out of myself. That our leaders are better than we are. She doesn't believe that our leaders are magical in some kind of a way. That, that presidents are heroes or even pastors or even pastors who are also her parents are heroes. <laughs> and I realize I think it is so tempting to believe that to believe in heroes like this. And the reason for us, just as it was the reason for Israel, is because we don't want to believe that our hope has to come from somewhere outside of us. We don't want to believe that. We want the hope, at the end of the day, to be us, some better version of us. And if it's not going to be me, or you, or this president, or that president, or this pastor, or that pastor, or Elon Musk, or whatever, like... At least somebody who is like us is going to be the one to save the day. Somebody after God's own heart, but closer to us than God seems to be. And therefore less frightening to us than God seems to be. More human. A hero. But I think what we learn from the story at the end of the day is that that's just not how it is. 
And in fact, that it is dangerous to think so because in service of that hope that some hero will rise up, we make excuses for evil behavior. We tolerate things that we don't have to tolerate. And what we are actually called to do, what if we really do put our trust in God as we say we do, the thing we are enabled to do is to be people of light. Genuinely people of light. People who wear our brokenness outwardly rather than trying to conceal it. Who expose the secrets even of our leaders, even of our dearest friends, even of ourselves even when we've already gotten away with it. Who, people who admire repentance, right, more than we long for results. People who refuse to let victims disappear because their existence is going to threaten the idols that we would prefer to worship. And when we do this, when we become people like that, things get ugly and they get really uncomfortable, but the reality is they also get honest and in that honesty, we have the chance to see that the, re- that the truth is our hope is not coming from anywhere or anybody else. That our hope can come and can only ever come from God alone. We aren't going to save ourselves. And what is beautiful about Israel, what is beautiful about churches, right, is that these can be communities of grace and mercy, not in spite of all of this brokenness, but because of this brokenness. That when we admit our own insufficiency, we can either despair and the hopelessness of trusting messed up people, right? Which can feel like, well, then it'll never work. Or we can link arms with these messed up people and discover that the goodness that we see and the goodness that we long for more of in the world must be coming from somewhere else. Because it is not coming from me, and it's not coming from you. When, when everything seems to fall apart, there's this opportunity for our blinders to come off about who is really worthy of our trust. And it's not one of us, it's God alone. And I think this lesson does not excuse what David has done in the story at all. But I wonder if it sheds light on what, for me, is actually the biggest question that this story leaves me with. And that is, why is this story here at all? Why is it there for you to read? Why was it, if it wasn't even there for you to read for hundreds of years, like why did they tell it for hundreds of years before it became something that we could read and then translate and keep reading all the way to the present? Frankly, who spills the beans is the question I would have. Why did the Israelites know what happened to Bathsheba? Why do they keep alive this embarrassing story in their oral, tra- oral tradition for centuries before writing it down? It doesn't make anybody, anybody at all look good. And there is actually an answer, right? The answer is that David does. David spills the beans in his own poetry in the Psalms. Psalm 51 is David's specific response to this sin. And we're going to read it in just a bit. But before we do, I want to draw your attention to one part of it. David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is a bad king. David can be a good sinner. 
in his nakedness before his own people who are surely also broken. He can illustrate that our weakness isn't the end of our hope, that it is now and has always been God who keeps the story going and God who works out salvation and justice in this world. And we don't need to shield our heroes like David. What we do is we need to, we need to do is we need to trust that daylight, right, is going to show us who we are and show us who God intends for us to be and that we need not fear that. So who is God to David and to Bathsheba? Well, he's the one who sees and cares about what's right more than what's working for Israel and is in fact willing to blow all of Israel up in order to pursue justice for this wrong that's been done. Who are we in this story? We're broken people who back then and still now desperately want to believe that there are people out there that we can trust in place of trusting God. That's who we are. We want to believe we can trust people who are closer, who are better, more relatable. And that's an idol. And what do we learn about how we are meant to relate to God from the story? Well, we learn that hope is found in confession. It's found in facing consequences and in letting our failures instruct others about the real choice that we're all facing. This real question, are people ever going to be enough? Are people ever going to be enough? Oh, man. There's a lot of random things in here, but that I want you to hold on to. Do you believe that it's people who are going to save the day? Is that what motivates your politics? Is that what motivates your attitude towards family, towards a spouse, towards parents, towards me? Are people ever going to be enough? Because here's the thing, man. Like, we will burn this whole world down chasing that dream. But there is another option. And that option leads to honesty. And it leads to vulnerability. And it leads, leads to the relief of justice and hope. But the thing is, we have to let go of ourselves and our idols in order to find it. The good news is that the God we fear hasn't given up on us that he is longing to show us a better way.